Hello and welcome to the Superposition Guys podcast. My name is Yuval, and my guests today are Professor Misha Lukin and Dolev Bluestein of Harvard, as well as Harry Zhu of Harvard and Quera. We discuss the recent quantum error correction paper, highlighting the evolution from physical to logical qubits and the realization of up to 48 logical qubits. They discuss how neutral atoms and optical tweezers are used in their experiments, the scalability of their methods, the potential for practical applications, future directions, and much more. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hello, Misha. Hello, Dorov. Dolev, hello, Harry. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. Misha, who are you and what do you do? Um, so I'm um, a professor of physics here at Harvard University, where I um, uh, do uh, research in uh, quantum optics and quantum information science. Um, and, um, you know, I'm also teaching. Uh, uh, and I'm, um, I'm in charge of the group, which uh, explores various directions in these areas. I'm also co-founder and board member of Square Computing, which is a startup company spun out of my lab. Wonderful. And Dolev, how about you? I'm a PhD student in the research group. I'm in my fifth year. And I do experimental physics. And I work on this atom array experiment. And in particular, a big focus of my PhD has been programming quantum circuits with the motion of atoms and its applications to quantum error correction. And Harry, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, uh... I'm currently a research scientist currently between Quera Computing and Harvard University, um, and I collaborate with people on both sides, primarily nowadays thinking about different architectural aspects related to using these neutral atom array systems for error-corrected quantum computing. And we're recording this podcast in the context of an error-correction paper that you guys uh, wrote. Uh, who wants to tell me about the paper and why is it significant? So maybe I can start and provide a little bit of the background, you know, to uh, this. And I'll let then Dalev uh, and Harry talk about the uh, uh, new, uh, exciting recent developments. So uh, to get the background, maybe we can look a little bit into the history. So as many of you know, uh, the ideas of quantum computing dating back now over 40 years ago, uh, you know, thanks to like pioneering kind of, you know, um, uh, theories by many famous physicists like Richard Feynman, for example. Uh, um, but um, the real kind of excitement in this um, uh, area started uh, in, during early to mid-90s. Uh, where people started to realize that there are some algorithms which one could execute on quantum computers, which are actually kind of amazing. So they give a you know big speed up uh, compared to um, uh, classical uh, computers in areas ranging from simulating quantum systems. This is something that Feynman originally envisioned to uh, um, other applications, like for example, factory. Uh, but uh, due to, like, so I was actually 
PhD student during the time, you know, um, and I was actually, you know, not really part of that field yet, but I was, you know, learning about this field as it was kind of, you know, starting and gathering steam. And uh, very early on, you know, many people recognized that building useful quantum computers, I mean, large-scale quantum computers that can execute a lot of operations, will be extremely hard. And uh, the reason for that is quite fundamental. So basically, all objects around us say consists from you know atoms and molecules, which are in principle quantum mechanical. But you know, if you look around, I mean, you don't see you know uh, objects and quantum superpositions. You know, you don't see um, you know objects which are obviously entangled with you know particles with with objects you know far away. So, and uh, for uh, and and I mean that's for good reason. So basically, you know, typically once you know you start um, looking at systems kind of at a large scale, at a macroscopic scale, they actually lose their quantum character. Um, and this is because basically quantum superpositions are very fragile, you know, at least at a, at a large scale. And for this reason, you know, they just do not naturally occur in them uh, in the real world. So. When people started thinking about quantum computers, they realized that the power of quantum computers lies precisely in creating, you know, superposition states of uh, large quantum registers and also entangled states of large number of particles. And it uh, it was very clear from very beginning that these um, uh, big superpositions, which you require to do, for example, useful quantum computation, will be extremely fragile. And uh, what it means operationally is that if you start, for example, building this, you know, superpositions or doing, you know, quantum logic to execute quantum computation, um, each logic operation will have, you know, small probability of error. And, you know, once this error starts <laughs> to accumulate, eventually, you know, basically this state, which is supposed to be a large quantum superposition, just becomes a classical object, kind of classical probabilistic statistical mixture. And it basically loses a quantum character. And what people, including, you know, many of them are, you know, very serious, very well-recognized physicists, uh, started pointing out early on that, I mean, look, to really execute, you know, like a really kind of deep quantum computation, you know, circuit with large number of qubits and large number of gates, if you want to execute it successfully, you need to have the error in a logical operation to be extraordinarily small, way smaller beyond what one can actually imagine, you know, which one could imagine at the time in 1990s. And I would say still much smaller than the error that we could possibly imagine ever, you know, you know, uh, with any realistic, you know, device. And for this reason, you know, there was actually kind of followed, uh, following kind of this early, you know, brief wave of excitement. There was also, uh, you know, some very healthy skepticism about these quantum computers, you know, whether they can ever be built at a kind of useful scheme. And then some of the same people who actually came up with these early ingenious algorithms, people like Peter Shore, uh, came out with uh, these ideas of quantum error correction. And that already at a theoretical level, 
uh, I would say, has been really an amazing discovery. Uh, so in principle, this, you know, quantum error correction, it uses this um, uh, kind of idea of redundant coding, you know, kind of very similar in spirit to classical error correction, where instead of just, you know, encoding a bit of information and in a physical bit of zero and one, you encode it into the state, for example, with multiple zeros to be zero and multiple ones to be one. And then what you can do, you could use some kind of majority voting procedure to kind of, you know, if the error occurred, to basically, you know, detect and correct it. Uh, and of course, this has been known for many decades. Uh, but, you know, early on, you know, people pointed out that these ideas, you know, cannot be applied to to quantum devices because, you know, in quantum uh, systems, A, you cannot clone the quantum state. It's fundamentally, you know, prohibited. And B, you know, if you measure the quantum state, you know, you basically collapse it. And, you know, against this backdrop, you know, in late 90s, you know, people came up, started to come up with the idea of how to actually correct errors in quantum systems. And these ideas used very much this kind of was based on this redundant encoding. But, you know, it turns out that if you are more clever, if you use entanglement, to encode quantum information to distribute it between multiple physical qubits, you can, um, at least in principle, detect and correct quantum errors. But realizing this quantum correction, error correction in the laboratory, you know, proved to be very high for multiple reasons, which we, some of which we can discuss. Uh, <coughs> and I would say, you know, up until very recently, these ideas were entirely in the realm of theory, you know, which was very beautiful, very ingenious, but, you know, it was even hard to start, like, probing, building blocks of this, um, uh, of, 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 of this quantum error correction, you know, up, up approach. So, over the last few years, uh, a number of systems, some small building blocks, uh, then so-called logical qubits, have been realized, but in the very kind of proof of concept you know, way. Um, and what is special about this work, and I'm sorry for a long answer, is that for the first time, not only we can realize all building blocks, but we start putting them together to start executing algorithms which benefit from this quantum error correction and fault tolerance property. So maybe I will stop here, you know. But hopefully it's useful. And, and so what are the yeah, it was very useful. Thank you. And what are the key findings, key demonstrations in this paper? Uh, maybe Dolev and, and Harry. So the, um, I mean, at a high level, the way I would describe it is that we're starting to build not uh, processors based out of physical qubits, but processors made out of logical qubits. And whereas, you know, we've kind of made a lot of progress in the field over the past uh, two decades, and specifically the last decade, testing algorithms with physical qubit devices, we're now able to start testing them with logical qubit devices and kind of explore the subtleties and challenges of that and also the benefits. So uh, in terms of kind of some key observations, the key technical observations made in the paper, we, we find a really important property, which is that the operations that we do between logical qubits can improve as we increase the size of our error correcting code. Uh, and in this demonstration with with an operation improving with code size is a, is a pretty important kind of first demonstration of this entangling operation. Uh, we see that we can make lots of logical qubits and program 
what we call fault tolerant algorithms between them, algorithms that are robust to having a single error. And in particular, we make up to 48 logical qubits and study hundreds of logical operations, whereas people have previously primarily studied you know, two logical qubits with one operation. Um, and, um, sorry. Uh, and, uh, uh, what we see from doing this algorithm with this, you know, many logical qubits and many logical operations, uh, is that we can actually do the algorithm much better with our error corrected qubits than with our physical qubits. Part of that are things that we kind of were expecting just from the error correcting and coding being better, but there are also kind of additional findings that we're making when we're actually trying to build these logical qubit devices in the lab and program algorithms with them. There's a lot of kind of interesting subtleties there, uh, uh, in terms of both challenges and benefits. Uh, and one of the kind of the, the really important aspect of our approach for kind of, okay, so that's a lot of kind of technical results. The, the kind of our underlying approach is using these neutral atoms, uh, dropped in optical tweezers. Uh, maybe I'll just go a little bit uh, into that now. So, um, people have been, this is, you know, one of various approaches to quantum computing. And over the past few years, there's been a variety of breakthroughs, uh, for our system. So one is that we've gotten very good at controlling large arrays of these neutral atoms trapped in optical tweezers. And we've used this for doing a variety of uh, quantum simulations in the past few years. Two years ago, we also started to move qubits around in the middle of the quantum computation. And it turns out that for quantum error correction, this is a really important facet of being able to uh, do kind of complex operations, which I'll mention more in a second. And then another really important recent advance is our ability to entangle qubits with a, with a really high success probability or a really high fidelity. Um, sorry, this is too technical, but the, um, uh, but in terms of the kind of key underlying principle of this logical processor. So because we have, you know, the optics where we can control lots of neutral atoms in parallel, and because we have the ability to move logical qubits around one of the big challenges that is, you know, historically been associated with doing error corrected algorithms is you need to take, as Misha was saying, to protect the logical qubit, you take it and then delocalize it using entanglement across many physical qubits. But now that it's spread out, it's pretty hard to operate on. And one of the big new advances for us is that we can take logical qubits and then delocalize them over many physical qubits, and then take these two logical blocks and then directly stack them on top of each other by using the motion of qubits, and then get them to directly interact in that way. And that's a much more efficient way of entangling these logical degrees of freedom. So that's kind of the the one of the really important advancements in this work. And does that mean that the operation on the logical qubit is essentially simultaneous operation on multiple physical qubits? That's right. Yeah, it's what's called a transversal operation. And what it means here, which is practically very beneficial, is that to do that same operation, to do this operation on the logical qubit level, we just now need to do that same exact operation on each individual physical qubit of that block. And with optics, this is something that really naturally multiplexes. Uh, because we can just take two logical qubits, um, move them right on top of each other, pulse our one kind of global laser that entangles all of the pairs at the same time. And in this one single step, we can do a logical entangling gate with kind of a very similar level of complexity to how we would just do a single physical entangling gate. And that's that's one of the key advances that has allowed us to now be able to build this logical processor. And Harry, it was mentioned that you guys executed a complex algorithm. What algorithm is that? And is that a, a, a useful algorithm from a business perspective? Yeah, so there were a variety of different algorithms that were kind of explored in this experiment, starting from some things that may be in, 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 the, in the kind of scale of our paper are relatively small, 
but actually are already quite a bit larger than the one or two logical qubit demonstrations that had come before. Um, we were able to prepare four qubit GHD space. These are like kind of highly entangled space between four qubits. And then we were also to take this even further and run kind of an interesting circuit on 48 logical qubits involving hundreds, uh, kind of over a hundred uh, entangling gates, as well as many non-clifford operations. Um, these are the types of operations that really allow your quantum computer to start doing classically hard or potentially intractable computations. And we were able to run these very complex circuits on these. Um, so from the physics point of view, there are actually potentially interesting kind of interpretations of these experiments we did in terms of so-called scrambling dynamics and the different various flavors of complex many-body dynamics. Um, currently, the particular circuit that we run might not have very clear direct commercial applications yet, but we are also very hopeful that many of the same building blocks that we've been able to demonstrate here could then both motivate but also be further developed into a regime that can be useful. And indeed, a lot of the kind of these gadgets that you look at them, they actually have some flavor that might look a little bit like the primitive operations of, say, what you see in an adder. Um, and indeed, there has been work also from others that that kind of has been going along the lines of viewing the gadgets from that lens. And so we're also very excited to see whether we can take these same results and techniques and bring them really into the practical application. And why 48 logical qubits? I mean, couldn't you push it a little bit more, maybe 58 and, and be beyond the simulation limit? So we, we intentionally made 48 logical qubits as a way to be able to still simulate our system. Uh, it's true that we can now use these error-corrected systems to now go to even larger systems, and 48 is not a hard limit at all. And, you know, in, in the kind of next few years, we'll probably continue to do error-corrected circuits that are even larger and even more complex. Um, but the, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe I could end it there. Misha, I wanted to ask you this process yeah, so of proving that, you know, so in a way, this is, um, uh, I mean, it's related, of course, to these discussions of quantum supremacy, right? And actually, you know, even with 48 logical qubits, with this kind of circuits of complexity that we have made, you know, it is actually impossible to simulate them directly, you know. But, you know, if you want, what we did is we kind of broke ourselves, our, our own supremacy circuit. We found kind of a very clear, a very clever kind of a shortcut, which allowed us to do these simulations, you know, basically with a very kind of clever computational trick. And, I mean, the goal there was to really benchmark the system to show that it really perform, can perform. And at this level, these ideas of error correction, error detection are still useful. I mean, that's that's the key goal of this, you know, work. Yeah. Yeah. Todd mentioned that qubit need to be shuttled, moved around. That sounds like it could take some time, uh, certainly more time than quantum operations take. Does, is that a disadvantage of the neutral atom approach? Yeah, this is also a, a, a very excellent question. Um, it is true that uh, moving atoms uh, is a relatively slow uh, operation. So in fact, these atom moves typically occur on a kind of time scale of about 100 microseconds. And this is to be compared to, let's say, our, you know, clock 
speed due to our gates, which is, you know, usually can be a kind of microsecond or even, you know, somewhat um, below. Uh, but, and, and, of and of course, we are actually thinking about how what could speed it up. So I do not think that we are at any kind of fundamental limit, you know. And I think this is some of this work is already, you know, we're starting to explore the ideas. But I would say even at this 100 microsecond level, um, this kind of architecture where you reconfigure connectivity, you know, and kind of create non-local connections, you know, and during the computation process um, can be exceptionally power, uh, powerful. Uh, and basically the idea here is that it allows you to do two things and which which are otherwise impossible. So first of all, it allows you to do these so-called transversal gates. And these transversal gates are very special because they do not result in a kind of massive propagation of errors. And for that reason, uh, for example, it is generally believed that these transversal gates could be done in a fault-tolerant way with much fewer rounds of error correction per gate, you know, and this, you know, for the codes, which are sufficiently large, that already immediately results in a massive saving. Moreover, uh, by moving items, we can enable virtually all-to-all -all connectivity with our processor without incurring the overhead, which is typically associated, for example, with swapping, you know, with moving qubits around. And so that, you know, in any kind of realistic practical algorithm results in, in, a, in another massive saving. So to summarize, while, you know, we, of course, we would like to speed things up and we would like to, you know, optimize this atom moving and, you know, include our uh, clock speed, we believe that already at the current clock speed, what we have done is, you know, is already quite special in the sense that, you know, in a large-scale algorithm, you know, this kind of, you know, non-local connectivity immediately allows us to, uh, you know, enable massive savings. And, you know, to understand, you know, these uh, things is really a frontier of both science and engineering, you know. And in fact, what we hope to do in the next, you know, few months is to really understand like at the architectural level, but also at a practical level, you know, what kind of algorithms can be really sped up during this approach, you know, approach. You know, what um, kind of operations benefit most from this non-local character, you know, and this is really, you know, I, I would say these are the questions which in principle could have been asked in the past, but our work makes it very clear that this kind of non-local connectivity and reconfigurable architecture is you know remarkably suitable for this kind of quantum error corrected fault tolerant devices. Donov, uh, Misha mentioned a hundred microsecond to move a qubit, but isn't that much longer than the coherence time in the Wittberg state? I mean, how how do you overcome that you can have enough computational cycles before you lose coherence? That's a great question. So the so um, here's some jargon: is that we we have our we have two qubit states that store coherence for very long times. There are hyperfine qubit states, and they're stored inside of the clock states of our uh, rubidium atom. It's our neutral atom that we use for storing quantum information. 
So these states have very long coherence time. They're on the scale of two seconds in our current system. And it could be, you know, even on the scale of 100 seconds with kind of additional effort. And then we only very briefly go through the so-called Rydberg state, which is how we do quantum gates. And so it was kind of first envisioned back in, in 2001 um, from Misha and Co. But the, um, uh, but the, uh, the way that works is we zap the atom with a, you know, very specific laser frequency. The electron gets excited to a very specific orbital state. Uh, and now the atom grows to a large size uh, and then picks up a large effective dipole where it interacts with other atoms. Uh, and this causes a really strong interaction that allows us to entangle the two hyperfine qubit states. Uh, but we only go through this Rydberg state very briefly. So that's how we do our quantum gate, which is at a very high fidelity. But then we store the information back down in the hyperfine qubit state. And then here the coherence is very long, such that now if we move the qubits around, uh, there's no decoherence or there's a, or there's a quite negligible level of decoherence during this motion time. So from the perspectives of, you know, being able to program early quantum circuits, this 100 microsecond mo movement time is not really a limitation. Harry, from your perspective, how well does this scale? I mean, right now you're showing wonderful results with hundreds of qubits, but likely we're going to need thousands or tens of thousands or even more qubits. Does this approach scale to large qubit count? That's a great question. I think even with the currently demonstrated tools in the lab, it can already go quite far. So for example, at the Harvard lab, um, we've been able to show kind of reliable trapping of a thousand or so qubits, which is already quite a lot of qubits that you can work with, but also with kind of newer generations of these machines that are being constructed you know, um, here at Harvard and in our community, um, we can easily go to somewhere probably around 10,000 or so qubits. Um, with some clever ideas that could maybe be bootstrapped a few factors further. Um, and also at the same time, there are also active efforts in, in interconnecting kind of multiple modules so that each module could be roughly of these tens of thousands of sizes, um, but then you can still do a lot and scale further. One thing to note also is that the flexible connectivity that Misha mentioned earlier not only provides avenues for reducing the time cost, it actually also provides avenues significantly reducing kind of the qubit overhead for doing error-corrected quantum computation. So for example, in a recent paper that we put out, we showed how using so-called quantum low-density parity check codes that have kind of much better encoding rates, so-called, which means that you can pack a lot more logical information into the same number of physical qubits. Actually, with on the order of 50,000 or so physical qubits, you can really imagine kind of having a 1,000 logical qubit processor with very low logical error rate, I think on the order of like 10 to the minus 10. Um, and so this really also provides us routes where even if we kind of more easily can get to the tens of thousands, and it might be slightly tough to go much beyond that, that already opens up a lot of computational capabilities that we can now further explore. Yeah, so maybe I can add a little bit to you also. It's actually... It's worth noting that, you know, whenever we run these experiments, you know, every time we you know, start this experiment, we trap, you know, some 10 millions of atoms, right? And basically what it means is that we have a very plentiful resource for each atom, you know, can encode the physical qubit, you know, we have a very plentiful, you know, resource for, you know, creating uh, the qubits and key issue which stops us from using all of these, you know, millions of atoms is control. And that, I would say, is really a critical innovation in this new work 
is that we show how we now can very efficiently control logical qubits rather than you know just you know focusing on controlling individual physical qubits. And I think this is really a paradigm shift in the community. And I think that's the key reason why we are in a unique position to start scaling up these techniques. You know, because basically at a high level we need a number of controls which scales with number of logical qubits, which is a lot more um which is a lot less prohibitive, you know, than you know, if you use basically if you just want to control each one atom uh, individually. AI is everywhere these days, and people talk about the chat GPT moment as the moment that AI became sort of universally useful or almost universally useful. Do you think we're at the chat GPT moment for quantum? And if not, how far are we? Uh, okay, I can try to answer this question. So, uh, I mean, to be honest, you know, I don't think we are at this moment yet. Uh, but at the same time, I do think we are coming to like an inflection point in quantum. And this, why this point is special is because these ideas of like error, quantum error correction, you know, fault tolerance, you know, uh, as I already mentioned in the beginning, you know, are very intriguing ideas. You know, initially people thought these things could not even be possible theoretical, but, uh, theoretically, but, you know, by now these ideas are almost 20 year old. And, you know, these were like theoretical ideas, which were extremely kind of intriguing, um, uh, extremely pro promising, but, you know, clearly, you know, very much out of reach. So what we are now, uh, you know, basically doing is we are entering this kind of new era, I would say, where, you know, these ideas, you know, all of this, you know, all of a sudden become very much kind of practical, you know. They are now a laboratory reality, and we can now start using these ideas as tools to kind of build, you know, and scale, you know, and make quantum processors useful. And I think in that sense, we are at the inflection point. And, you know, I really, you know, think that these advances will greatly accelerate the progress towards these goals of, you know, being large-scale useful quantum processors. In your best guess for business usability, how how soon are we? Well, you know, well, that's your job, you know. So, but, you know, but, my, okay, my sense um, is that I do think that using the techniques which we have demonstrated, we have a very clear path to, you know, building, you know, systems with, you know, maybe hundreds or maybe hundreds of logical qubits within the next few years. At the same time, given the rate of progress in this field, I would be shocked if within next, you know, one, two, three years, we would not put ourselves in a position where the path to thousands of logical qubits is basically similarly in a clear sight. So at that point, I would say there will be, you know, very clear uh, practical value of these machines beyond just scientific, you know, experiments, which we already enjoy, you know.
As we get close to the end of our conversation, there's a question I'd like to ask all my guests, and I'm particularly interested in asking it here. Um, and perhaps first Misha and then uh, Harry and Dolev. If you could have dinner with one of the quantum greats, dead or alive, who would that person be? Oh, that's a, I don't know. But yeah, I'm sure that Richard Feynman would enjoy, you know, seeing these results. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's in some way what we are doing is kind of, you know, is implementing his vision. You know, he envisioned, you know, encoding qubits and single atoms and, you know, turning on and interactions between them. And now we can do it in a way which is us to Earth. I think this is very special. And uh, Dolev and Harry, uh, please don't answer Misha. So someone else. So... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you said I have chatted plenty, <laughs> but uh, I guess um, I mean it would be pretty interesting to go all the way back to someone in like the era of Schrodinger and kind of see from their perspective how much things have changed. Uh, I mean, all, already the classical computing revolution leveraged a lot of their discoveries, but it, I mean, for example, Schrodinger has a famous quote that uh, you know to interact with single atoms or single particles is just a thought experiment and that we never actually do this in practice. And now we've gotten really so good at controlling single particles that we've started, you know, entangling them to create controlled single particles, a controlled logical particles. And I think it would be really interesting to see their perspective on all of it. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I think I would answer that. I guess, I guess Mishnah and that took the first two people that came to mind. So I'll have to find another one and actually Maybe I'll go even a little bit further and uh, and kind of say Alan Turing. Um, I guess the reason for that for me is that I think one of the reasons that I find thinking about quantum computing really cool is both that it has a lot of kind of potential practical applications, but also that in a sense, it's giving us a new almost computational lens on the universe. Things that with the regular classical machines things that we might not imagine being able to efficiently do, you actually have these machines that go kind of beyond the regular, like kind of classical Turing machine paradigm. And you actually have these machines with a slightly different set of computational capability. And so what I would actually be very interested in, in kind of learning from him or seeing how he would respond to that, because at the time when Alan Turing was around, I guess quantum mechanics was known. Um, people just didn't really necessarily think from the lens of the computational power of it. Um, and so I think it will be super fascinating to see with seeing all of these modern advances, what his perspective would be on both kind of computation. Excellent. Can I actually, or can I, one thing to what Misha had said previously, if that's okay. And we can, Please? we can decide whether to remove it, but the, just in terms of how special where we currently are is, I think there's also some, some other groups in the field that kind of really deserve a lot of acknowledgement in the sense of, so like I were in a really special place after, you know, kind of this advance and there is a pretty exciting opportunity in the next five years or so, or maybe I shouldn't say time, but the kind of, you know, next coming years to see how we're able to advance this and kind of really try to realize this vision of a large scale quantum computer. If it wasn't for the kind of decades of work that came before, this would obviously not have been possible. And for example, other platforms like, you know, 
the ion approach, for example, was definitely had a lot of, we learned a lot from in terms of this, this, uh, you know, we can remove this if you think this is bad, but the, but, um, so the, but like the, I actually, when we first started to do this qubit shuttling, this ion approach and this kind of ion vision of a qubit shuttling architecture was really inspiring for us. There's various reasons why our shuttling approach is easier and kind of works quite a bit better, at least for this error correction application. The, it was actually the credit of the superconducting qubit people who have really spent a lot of effort thinking about how to control their complex systems and get to larger scales that they really, you know, successfully, we learned from then kind of how important this parallel control is and to leverage it and kind of not let it go. And so I think these two kind of groups of people, I think we really learned a lot from, of course, the kind of early error correction theory was also critical. And then kind of moreover on top of that, we're not the only neutral atom group in the field. And there's a lot of very exciting work happening in the field with neutral atoms. So we have, you know, various things that we've innovated on in terms of the movement of qubits and its application error correction. There's lots of other interesting things going on in the field in terms of different atomic species that people are exploring that can have a lot of unique benefits that can kind of make sometimes the error correction much more efficient, different ways of measuring the qubits that can be a lot better, different ways of controlling the qubits. And I think something that's pretty special in our community is that, you know, we've done a pretty good job at keeping, you know, open communication and that looking into the future, while we do kind of, are kind of starting to develop a plan, we are looking for as many breakthroughs as possible and the kind of more breakthroughs that happen across the field and that we can kind of simultaneously leverage between the groups, the better. Um, yeah. And yeah, okay. That's, that's no, no, it's actually, I think this is an excellent point and maybe I want, would like to add a little bit to that. So when specifically, um, uh, in, in, in any industry and even in the quantum industry, you know, I think people, if they make forecasts, they try to do like linear extrapolations, you know? And while if you do that on a kind of short time scale of one or two years, I think it totally is totally makes sense, you know? I think this work, you know, shows that sometimes these linear extrapolations are completely missing the point, you know? Are completely incorrect. And what this means is that, yes, I think there is a clear, you know, plan towards, you know, 100 logical qubits, you know, and could start making plans about, you know, you know, thousands of logical qubits now. But what Dalev has mentioned and what is happening in this field right now, in this field of neutral atom uh, quantum computing, is that there is an incredible level of innovation, in particular by, you know, some of the groups, and, you know, or, you know, alumni from our uh, community here, Harvard and MIT, you know, they're really exploring very cool new directions, you know, and, you know, I would say, you know, if like, you know, I attend, you know, sessions where, you know, these guys give talks, you know, I really feel that, you know, the future is in a very good hands. I think there are possibilities for multiple breakthroughs in future, which could really accelerate the progress way beyond, you know, what we can imagine today. And, you know, I think we should be very clear eyes about the challenges ahead, but these, you know, things which I just mentioned really, you know, are both like, you know, inspiring and makes me extremely hopeful that the useful, yeah, you know, quantum computers can actually be built in not too distant future. And my last question, I, I promise, Misha, what, professionally speaking, what keeps you up at night? 
So that's actually a very good question. And in fact, I was asked this question uh, uh, four days ago by, uh, by Mike Friedman, you know, at the conference, you know. And I answer him that I, I'm actually sleeping very well, you know. <laughs> so believe it or not, you know. Um, you know, but look, I mean, again, you know, if we want to realize this vision of, you know, making, you know, practical, large-scale, you know, systems with thousands of logical quantum bits operating at rates, you know, below, you know, one part to the 10 to the 10 or something like that, you know, um, I do think we need to keep the innovation going. So... There are certainly, you know, things in near term we are working on, you know, among them, you know, we want to make these uh, systems which we have now operate continuously, you know, rather than a pulse mode, as we have done so far. Uh, all the way to the kinds of things that, you know, um, uh, Harry mentioned. So right now, you know, scaling up using conventional approach approaches implies massive overhead in terms of qubit numbers, um, in terms of controls, you know. I cannot imagine that this is the optimal way to scale up, you know. So, for example, what we have shown here is that, you know, the best way to really implement a useful algorithm is to think about the application, the algorithm, quantum error correcting code and the implementation all together. And, you know, what I think we really, you know, the unique opportunity we have in the next few years is to really try to apply this approach to much broader set of problems, including practical problems, you know, problems which matter for industry, problems which matter for science. And I think that's, you know, our work shows that it's possible and, you know, I really would like to see this direction to flourish within the next year or two. That's what I'm most excited about. Perfect. Harry, Doris, Mr. thank you so much for joining me today. Okay. Thank you. Uncle. Thank you.